Welcome back everybody to the Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Tuesday. Let's dive in. Republican Congressman-elect George Santos has finally responded to the New York Times reporting that fantastically outlined how he pretty much lied about so many aspects, just outright made up things on his resume that he ran on about his background, and they just weren't true at all. And now he's responded through a New York Post interview and admits to almost all of the reporting, admits to almost all of what was um, uncovered in this New York Times investigation. So we're going to take a look at this article. We have to read directly from the New York Post article because these quotes where he tries to wiggle himself out of the framing of an outright liar and say, oh, okay, yeah, I embellished some things. I apologize for that, but uh, I'm still going to be a congressman. I'm not going to preemptively step down as there's a lot of pressure and all of this. So we'll look at that first in case you missed the buildup to this. Uh, George Santos ran for Congress won his district in New York that previously voted for Biden. So he helped to flip uh, blue to red, in part helping the Republican Party to get a majority in the House. And he was getting some national attention for being, uh, he was going to be the first non-incumbent openly gay Republican to get elected. And that would have been a pretty big deal, or at least uh, nationally into Congress. And um, that was garnering some national news. And then this came out and just engulfed him in scandal, as is uh, seen here. So New York Post title, Liar Representative-Elect George Santos admits fabricating key details of his bio. Long Island Representative-Elect George Santos came clean to the Post on Monday, admitting that he lied on the campaign trail about his education and work experience, but insisting that the controversy won't deter him from serving out his two-year term in Congress. So great, you get to get elected by uh, depicting yourself one way, then it gets revealed that that's not at all who you are and you're still going to become a congressman. Wow. Quote, I'm not a criminal, Santos said at one point during his exclusive interview. This will not deter me from having good legislative success. I will be effective. I will be good. So the I'm not a criminal part has to do with a certain part of the reporting that he's not admitting to, which is that certain uh, criminal charges were in Brazil against him. And he's saying that's not true. But when you show yourself to be so dishonest, we can't take your word on that at all. And then it lays out the New York Times' part in this. Next quote, quote, my sins here are embellishing my resume. I'm sorry, Santos said Monday. Not embellishing, just completely making up huge aspects of it. Santos confessed he had never worked directly for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, chalking that fib up to a poor choice of words. A poor choice of words. That's how he's framed. I misspoke. I didn't mean to say that I worked for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Instead, a company he worked for called Linkbridge, I guess, had dealings with Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. Mm, that's definitely the same thing, George Santos. Quote, I will be clearer about that. It was stated poorly, Santos said of the lie. He also admitted that he never graduated from any college despite previously claiming to have received a degree from Baruch in 2010. So not only is he lying about going to Baruch specifically, but he's lying about getting a college degree at all. I didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. I'm embarrassed and sorry for having embellished my resume. You know over the last week or so that he's been working with his team to decide how they're going to respond to this. They had a whiteboard and were thinking of different words. Okay, 
Um, manipulated details. No, that sounds too malicious. Ooh, embellished. Just say you embellished things instead of outright lied about them. I own up to that. We do stupid things in life. Santos elected to Congress, and we're about to get to one of the most wild parts of this. On November 8th, to represent the Long Island and Queens-based 3rd District, was also accused of lying about his family history, saying on his campaign website that his mother was Jewish and his grandparents escaped the Nazis during World War II. Santos now says that he's clearly Catholic, but claimed his grandmother told stories about being Jewish and later converting to Catholicism. Quote, I never claimed to be Jewish. I am Catholic because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background, and I said I was, wait for it, Jew-ish. Not Jewish. So he claimed to be Jewish. He's saying, no, 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 no. I said I was Jew, space, 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 ish. Sorta. I was sort of Jewish. Or I was Jewish. That is absolutely bonkers. You are so dishonest, George Santos. To this day, you're still trying to lie about what you said and what you claimed. Um, again, campaign website said his mother was Jewish and his grandparents escaped the Nazis during World War II. Now he's saying, no, 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 no. I just said that I had heard some stories about some Jewish background, so I said I was Jew, sorta. Wow. Santos, the first openly gay, and then it dives into... Um, an aspect of this that isn't that important to me that he hadn't disclosed a previous marriage with a woman despite being openly gay but that happens people get married to the opposite sex and then realize um or come out as gay and then move on which is a part of a life next aspect santos also acknowledged being a deadbeat tenant in sunnyside queens where the times reported he was ordered by a judge to pay more than twelve thousand dollars to a former landlord who landlord who claimed non-payment of several months of rent as well as the santos uh, as well as that santos had tried to pass a check that bounced and this had to do with um medical struggles with his um mother which obviously i absolutely empathize with Santos also admitted to lying when he claimed that he owned 13 different properties, saying he now resides at his sister's place in a Huntington, but is looking to purchase his own place. So he said he owned 13 properties. In reality, he's living with his sister and is thinking about purchasing a property. Is that how it works now? I'm also thinking about solving world hunger. Can I say that I've solved world, world hunger? I'm thinking about purchasing property, thus I have 13 of them. George Santos does not own any properties, he said, talking about himself in the third person. Santos was defiant on one point, denying an allegation raised by the Times that he had an unspecified criminal charge filed against him in Brazil. I am not a criminal here, not here or in Brazil or in any jurisdiction in the world. Santos said, absolutely not. That didn't happen. And then he continues on to talk about how he is so confident that he will continue forward and become a congressman in January will not preemptively step down, which is so wild. The fact that you can run on a bunch of stuff, make a whole false depiction of who you are, and then before you even take over in the position that you ran for, it gets revealed that none of that was true, but you're still going to uh, become a congressman. Holy smokes. Now, here's an interview he did after this with WABC Radio, where he continues to try to frame this in such a dishonest way. I'm not a criminal, not here, not abroad, in any jurisdiction in the world have I ever committed any crimes. To get down to the nit and gritty, I'm not a fraud. 
I'm not a, a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. Um, no, you are. I mean, that's exactly what you did, right? I've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people know me. They know who I am. They've done business dealings with me. I'm not going to make excuses for this, but a lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or ingrandiate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. I'm not a criminal. Not So I'm not going to make excuses, but a lot of people do it. So... No, uh, honestly, that's not true. A lot of people don't run for public office and create a resume that is just completely fabricated. Not the whole thing. I'm sure there's parts of it that were true, but so many key aspects of it, which make the whole resume just completely dishonest and uh, filled with lies. That is just you lying. That's not you embellishing. Again, the example that comes to mind when people say embellish is I worked eight years somewhere, and I said I worked a decade. Okay, I should have been more specific, but a decade sounded nicer. You made up places you worked, made up things about your family past, made up a college degree you got. That is so beyond what he's trying to make it out to be. A Republican got asked on CNN about this, um, and I very much agreed with his response. Uh, you know, honestly, if he had in a shred of self-integrity, you know, uh, he would he would bow out because he made up a whole story, sold it to the voters, and he got elected. And so if he really meant what he said in his interviews today, he would resign and then run on his actual resume <laughs> and see what the voters had to say at that point. I mean, that would be sort of the honest and honorable way to handle it. He's obviously not going to do that. I mean, you you don't want to play golf or cards with this guy. I do, th I do think you... <laughs> want to see this guy put before the ethics committee it strikes me that he may have financial disclosure issues um and it, right. it also has the smell the whiff of other shoes that are about to drop i don't know anything and we've got reporters working on it but you just get the feeling even after all we learned today there there could be more so uh mm -hmm. look he's obviously not an honorable person i doubt he resigns uh and if the voters get a chance to deal with it in two years i'm sure they will yeah uh, reporters are looking at everything yeah, to the last point he made, now that this has broken, every single major media organization is going to have people on this, diving into even more specific aspects of his history. And so if there is anything else out there, it's going to get un uncovered and it's going to be wild to see because I'm very curious about the criminal aspect of this because the New York Times wouldn't have just baselessly slapped that on at the end or whatever, thrown it in the article for no reason. And obviously he's going to deny that one as hard as he can because that more significantly, uh, completely, well, all of this should, but that completely rules you out as someone who should be in Congress. Um, I think outright lying about your entire history should as well, but he doesn't agree with me and we'll see how it all goes. Hopefully, He'll get pressured into resigning because, again, you can't run on a resume and a background that just wasn't true and then still uh, take over in the position that you were running for. That's just completely backwards. Interesting reporting from Politico about how Republican Representative Bob Good is one of the individuals standing against Kevin McCarthy's rise to the speakership. 
We've been following this very closely, seeing if McCarthy will have his uh, longtime goal of becoming Speaker of the House blocked by some individuals within kind of the more radical part of the Republican Party, Matt Gates among them. And uh, very interesting here, they had an interview Politico with Representative Bob Good, who laid out his reasoning how uh, Kevin McCarthy had actually funded his primary opponent and then he doesn't feel like turned around and supported Bob Good once he won the primary enough. And that kind of put a bad taste in Bob Good's mouth. And now, because of some other political aspects of all of this, he's deciding to very aggressively stand against Kevin McCarthy. So here a little bit from this report. We sat down with Good for the Playbook Deep Dive podcast this week to try to understand the rebellion brewing against McCarthy. We not only came away convinced that Good is probably never going to back the California Republican for Speaker, but gained a glimpse at how the opposition has been driven by strategic, ideological, and at times personal reasons. Had Republicans flipped the House by a broader margin, as they were expected to, Good would uh, likely be dismissed by his colleagues as a gadfly. But given the unexpectedly slim margin, Good and a handful of like-minded conservatives hold McCarthy's fate in their hands and stand ready to wield considerable power next year, no matter who ends up as Speaker. We also learned that Good and co. are formulating a plan for the January 3rd Speaker's uh, vote. Anti-McCarthy members are currently plotting to back Representative Andy Biggs on the first ballot, he said, to prove McCarthy can't get the gavel. But once the second ballot is called, they'll begin uh, coalescing around another unnamed candidate, a GOP lawmaker most have already agreed upon, Good said, but will not name for fear of hurting this person's candidacy. So, really, really interesting. According to this reporting and according to Bob Good, they have a plan within the anti-McCarthy group of people in Congress within the Republican Party who are formulating a way to block McCarthy from becoming speaker and have already worked out someone else that they're going to get to be speaker of the House within the Republican Party. Now, as I've talked about in the past, everything that Kevin McCarthy has done over the last many years has just exuded clearly him wanting to become speaker. And that's what all of this was for all of the different changing of principles and having no moral backbone and political strategy was to get him to be Speaker of the House. And so for that all to be blocked is going to be honestly a little bit sweet to watch because there were so many times where he sacrificed what was some moral principle he could have held within the Republican Party and uh, responded in a more uh, principled and full of character way. And he didn't because he thought that was how he was going to become speaker one day, if he could become the head of the party. And he got to be the head of the Republicans. And now he's so close, but it's going to get blocked. It looks like, but we'll see how it all goes. Very interesting. And I'm very much looking forward to watching this go down on January 3rd. Speaking of Kevin McCarthy's attempt to become Speaker of the House and how uh, Republicans, specifically those in the House Freedom Caucus, the more radical part of the Republican Party, are standing against it and against Kevin McCarthy. This is actually creating a little bit of a rift between 
certain members who are all radical. So you have Marjorie Greene and Lauren Boebert feuding over this, where Lauren Boebert is saying, yeah, I don't agree with Marjorie Greene, who is supporting Kevin McCarthy, because Lauren Boebert doesn't support Kevin McCarthy in becoming Speaker of the House. And she says, just like how I don't agree with her Jewish space lasers comment. And that caused a little clash there. And now Representative Andy Biggs, who's usually very much in line with Marjorie Greene, is also speaking out against her on this. So take a look at this interview with Representative Andy Biggs, where he uh, makes clear he's not so in line with Marjorie Greene anymore. And this, to me, is MAGA breaking up. Now, they'll likely come back together. Even in this interview, he says, I love Marjorie Greene, but, you know, she's made some mistakes. Um, but at this point in time, you have Lauren Boeber and Marjorie Green clashing, Andy Biggs now and Marjorie Green, and this is dividing what used to be a pretty united, radical part of the Republican Party. Take a look at this interview. Uh, I want to read to you uh, a little bit from that very lengthy tweet thread that Marjorie Taylor Green put out this week, suggesting that she's disappointed by her friends saying that uh, you would mislead the base, and that's a big reason why she's speaking out. She also said, quote, the speaker is elected inside our Congress that unfortunately for us conservatives is filled with too many moderates and is impossible for a conservative to get 218 votes. The congresswoman is suggesting that you, Congressman Biggs, and others are misleading the base but when I talk to many in Washington, D.C., like Russ Vogt, who knows the Hill very well, they suggest that it's the other way around. What's going on here? Well, you know, I love Marjorie, but but here, I mean, she's kind of crossed a Rubicon there. She's calling us liars and and saying we're misleading. But, but here's the whole deal. Um, she, the parliamentary process for electing a speaker goes like this. It's designed for the majority party to win. That's, that's simply the way it's set up. That's why uh, you have a, the denominator system where it's whoever votes, it's the, you gotta get a majority of whoever votes, not the body. It's not a majority of the quorum, it's the majority of whoever votes. So if the majority party does what it's supposed to do, they'll win. So um, that's wild. He's saying she crossed a Rubicon and is calling them liars. Now, we previously talked about how Bob Good, with a lot of these members, are concocting a plan to support Andy Biggs in the first round of voting and then coalesce around someone else who they feel like could actually win. So block Kevin McCarthy and then switch over and try to get someone else elected speaker. It's risky because if it's not perfectly pulled off, you could have a situation where Hakeem Jeffries of the Democratic Party becomes speaker if you mess this up. But Andy Biggs wants the base to believe that they have a plan that's airtight enough that that wouldn't end up occurring and they would be able to prevent Kevin McCarthy from becoming speaker while still keeping the Republican Party as the one that chooses the speaker. And so I want to see this continue. As we always talk about, it is beneficial to progressives for the right to have infighting going on. And it's so often that the left is constantly at each other's throats, just attacking one another about everything. And the right, when it comes to important times, will unify. And that's how they, despite having very, in most cases, unpopular positions, still win elections in so many situations. Now they're also getting divided within their party um, and their situation here. 
And I think that's really beneficial and hopefully it will lead to a pretty disastrous situation in this whole speakership uh, feud. Carrie Lake completely failed with her lawsuit as we talked about yesterday and a little last week. And now, of course, in response to that, she's lying about the lawsuit, about the judge. And we're going to look at that lie that is so outrageous, just complete, you know, conspiracy brain melting um, her brain cells with conspiracy theories, as we'll see in a second. But then also, as we'll look at in this segment, because of how baseless all of this was, and it kind of wasted the court's time, Katie Hobbs and others within the Maricopa County um, uh, structure are going to seek sanctions against Carrie Lake to try to get her to pay back the related expenses to this um, these court proceedings. So first, here's the tweet she sent out when it came out that the judge had thrown out her lawsuit. The dismissal of Carrie Lake's election lawsuit shows voter disenfranchisement no longer matters. Legal experts believe his decision, and this is her quoting some article, um, legal experts believe his decision, Judge Thompson, was ghostwritten. They suspect top left-wing uh, left attorneys like Mark Elias emailed him what to say. So she, through this other uh, likely very right-wing uh, publication, is trying to allege that Judge Thompson, who was appointed by a Republican, was getting uh, his statements ghostwritten by someone else who sent him an email saying, hey, this is what you should say instead. They suspect top left-wing attorneys like Mark Elias emailed him what to say. I mean, that's what so many people have running around in their head day to day instead of just realizing, oh wait, Carrie Lake lost. She had a chance in court to prove, to bring evidence of all the claims she's been telling us and it got thrown out and it got seen to be absolutely baseless and she didn't bring any of the evidence that would have proved the point she was trying to prove. That should inform those who follow Carrie Lake and support her that, oh, this isn't true, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter how many Republican uh, appointed judges this gets put in front of. It doesn't matter how many court cases, as we saw in 2020 with Trump's uh, claims, there's always an answer. And it's, oh, that person's corrupt. That person's a part of the deep state. That person is having their talking points written by Katie Hobbs aligned attorneys and all of this. And it's just not true. Now, the sanctions aspect of this, um, again, Katie Hobbs and others are seeking sanctions from this local news report. We spoke with a legal expert on the motion for sanctions. If you want to play unfrozen caveman lawyer on your YouTube channel, that's one thing, said Ton Collins, executive director of the Arizona Citizens Clean Elections Commission. If you want to go into a court of law and take up the court's time and invoke the entire legal process, you got to do an adequate professional investigation. Collins says he is not surprised by the calls to sanction Lake. It demonstrates how this problem of election denial and being unwilling to accept the results of a fair election and the rule of law and objecting to the rule of law come together and create a real toxic problem, which is absolutely accurate. And uh, at the top here, according to court documents filed on December 26. Hobbs also filed an application for attorney's fees and expenses requesting about $37,000 paid as a sanction. 
The argument cites character of work, saying that this was an expedited election proceeding requiring extensive work by her counsel. Hobbs also says that since Maricopa County Superior Court Judge Peter Thompson denied Blake's claim entirely and that Hobbs was uh, victorious, her attorney fees should be paid back. There could be more costs, however, as officials with Elias Law Group, which represented Hobbs, said there could be at least $450,000 in costs. Enough really isn't enough. It's uh, past time to end unfounded attacks on elections and unwarranted accusations against election officials. So there we go. Um, seeking to be paid back by Carrie Lake for forcing Katie Hobbs, forcing the court to spend money on a completely baseless uh, set of accusations and litigate this when she really wasn't bringing forward anything of substance, which we understood, but it's good to see that that's actually all playing out um, through our judicial process. Very interesting new audio has been uncovered of Representative Nancy Mace. After January 6th, on January 11th of 2021, in a GOP conference meeting, saying things that now she will not say publicly. So we've seen this with so many people, but this is another example within the Republican Party where right after January 6th, they were wanting a change of course in their party. They were wanting some sort of awakening, realization that things have gone so wrong within the Republican Party. We've gotten engulfed by conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists and just wild thinking we need to correct course. And that's what she believed until she realized that wasn't going to help her politically. Then later on, she was going after AOC, pretending like AOC's account of January 6th was overly dramatic and all of this, trying to play down the significance of January 6th, even though right after, even publicly, she had had more strong statements and then softened her tone as the days and months went by. Now she's supporting Kevin McCarthy, who went and after January 6th, uh, licked the boots of Trump at Mar-a-Lago and is just completely going on as if there's not a need for a huge change, of course. So listen to this audio from, again, a Republican meeting that was going on. You'll hear her clash with Lauren Boeber in it, but very interesting. We risked our lives to take what should have been a ceremonious vote to certify the Electoral College on Wednesday. And we're talking about tone tonight, that our tone is what got us here in the first place. We were led by QAnon conspiracy theorists on these objections. And I want to know in the bipartisan commission, whatever investigation we're going to do, are we not only investigating what led up to this with the president's comments and enabling this, but are we going to look at our own party and our own members? We had a member allegedly tweeting out live the location of people Nothing I said was not public information. So you need to stop that I'm right not, now. It doesn't matter. The rhetoric is still happening going on online and people are being threatened. Their lives are at risk. We have members within our own party that have used and ratcheted up this rhetoric. And this is why we're here today. I want to know if we're going to look at how we got here internally within our own party and hold people responsible. We risk. Yeah. So even publicly, she had condemned Trump for all of this. And then again, I say that should have been the moment when she broke away from the Republican Party, not necessarily leaving formally the Republican Party, but doing uh, formally, but doing what um, uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger did in making it a focus of their political message that I no longer can sit by 
quietly and watch the Republican Party become what it has become and continue to be engulfed by these dangerous ideas and figures and a movement that perpetuates those things. But that's not what she did. Okay, you, you condemn here and there, but then you support individuals and you stay quiet during a crucial investigation into all of this. That is so low character as we talk about with so many of these individuals. And as I mentioned, Kevin McCarthy has just completely now accepted what the Republican Party is when he also, after January 6th, was super angry and wanted to oust Trump completely, then realized the base wasn't going to follow in that and went and supported him and um, took that photo, that iconic now photo of him at Mar-a-Lago with Trump shortly after. And it's just so brutal because you wish, you know, you're a child, you grow up and you're thinking, surely leaders have some ounce of morality, right? Some principle, some character. Maybe I'll disagree with them, but they'll have some line that can't be crossed. And I remember thinking after January 6th, okay, this is it. A lot of these people are genuinely not great people, but this will be the line that gets crossed that forces the Republican Party to completely turn on Trump, but not just Trump, Trumpism and MAGA and all this conspiracy thinking. And it sort of started, you thought it was going to happen, and then it didn't. And they continued to allow this to be a part of their party as uh, Representative Mace has allowed, despite having strong things to say shortly after January 6th. It is so aggravating to watch. There was reporting a while back now that revealed, as I'm sure we talked about on the show, that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump don't want to be a part of Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. Ivanka Trump releasing a statement saying she's not going to be involved in politics and she still loves her father and supports him, but she's not going to be a part of it. Now, that's a big deal because of how involved, crucially involved, both Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were in Donald Trump's uh, White House, you know, logistics. They were in crucial positions. Jared Kushner ran so much um, day to day, at least that's reporting, uh, reportedly what was going on. And then Ivanka Trump also close advisor to Trump and now just completely bowing out. And just now it seems Trump is getting really mad about this reporting and wanting to deny it and saying, no, 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 no. I asked them not to be a part of my campaign for their sake. I don't want them to get attacked. Mm, I'm sure. So here's the New York Post article that came out. Now, let's see. Um, over a month ago and Trump this is the title, Trump begging Jared Ivanka to join him on stage for campaign launch. Javanka seems to want no part of Trump 2024. Former President Donald Trump spent part of daughter Tiffany's lavish Mar-a-Lago wedding this past weekend trying to convince his much-loved elder daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner to be with him on stage when he announces his third consecutive run for the presidency at the Palm Beach Resort Tuesday night, sources told The Post Monday. So far, the man known for the art of the deal has not closed this one. So that's it being reported that he really wanted them to appear on stage, to be supportive, to be involved in this. And we know they turned him down. They don't want to be involved at all. Well, now he's sending out on Truth Social a very angry message 
saying, quote, contrary to fake news reporting, I never asked Jared or Ivanka to be part of the 2024 campaign for president and, in fact, specifically asked them not to do it. Too mean and nasty with the fake and corrupt news and having to deal with some absolutely horrendous sleazebags in the world of politics and beyond. There's never been anything like this riot before, and they should not be further subjected to it. I ran twice, getting millions more votes the second time, rigged, and am, uh, and am doing it again. So he's very upset at the idea. I don't know why now this is coming to his mind. Maybe he saw another report on it or something, but this was something reported on previously that we started to understand. Even his daughter and son-in-law don't want to have anything to do with this 2024 presidential campaign, which I understand because holy smokes, it's a mess and it's been very sad to watch. And by that, I mean, because it's a sad campaign, it's been very fun to watch. More information being revealed with the final report being released from the January 6th Select Committee's months-long investigation um, into January 6th, the attempts by Trump to overturn the 2020 election, and all of that. And this is scary, what I'm about to show you, for what it represents and indicates about if this is going to be attempted in the future how it would go and how it could maybe go better for someone like Trump or any individual who wants to stay in power despite losing an election. So take a look at this reporting about an aspect of the January 6th Select Committee's investigation that has now been released. We have just obtained new transcripts in tonight of testimony by some of the key figures before the House January 6th Committee. It comes just on the heels of that committee's final report. In crafting that report, the committee was aiming to write history as well as to prevent one of the worst chapters of American history from ever repeating itself. We're going to have more on that and the new testimony that landed tonight from CNN's Jessica Schneider, who joins us now. Just, Jessica, tell us what we're learning, uh, particularly from these new witness transcripts. Yeah, Jim, the new release transcripts uh, numbering more than 40, and they fill thousands of pages. They include really big names like Ivanka Trump, Hope Hicks, and former Attorney General Bill Barr. Our team has been parsing through the pages, and we've actually learned for the first time that Ivanka Trump did, in fact, hand over text messages to the committee, though we're still not clear exactly about the contents of those texts. Ivanka did tell the committee, however, that she never exchanged any texts with uh, Trump, her father, on any device. The committee has also uncovered a White House press release, get this, that was drafted but never actually sent that would have called for firing anyone who disagreed with Trump's false claims of election fraud. So, uh, Jim, the committee has said that these transcripts will keep coming out over the next few days. Through so that's the part that is so the end of this um, not surprising, but shocking for what it means. Um, not surprising in the sense of I'm sure we could all have guessed that was going on, uh, meaning Trump and his allies sending around a memo saying, now at, um, or a draft of a press release, I should say, preparing to have a policy that if you disagree with Trump's election lies, you're going to be fired. Because that is what saved us on January 6th in the attempts by Trump to stay in power despite losing the presidential election was okay, enough people around him weren't on board and Vice President uh, Mike Pence at the time being one of them who wasn't going to go along with this scheme to do a, fault, um, 
a fake and false slate of electors and say those are the real electors, thus Trump's actually president. And who knows what would have happened because that's not at all legitimate, but then there would have been a bunch of um, crises. So if someone like Trump or Trump himself got back in office and wanted to try this again somehow, what would be the first thing they learned from the last round? I can't have people who will disagree with me on anything. Everyone who's around me has to agree with my lies and be ready to overthrow our democratic process. And they were preparing in a way to do that here, saying, if anyone disagrees with my election lies, they're fired. We saw him fire a lot of people in the last days of his uh, presidency who weren't in line with him on some of these things. And so if he had done that his entire presidency, then at the end, he would have been ready to really try to do a coup, which was what they were attempting, a non-military coup um, in this situation. And that is very scary. And it matters a lot because we have to put in the proper guardrails to make sure that someone who has the intention of staying in power despite losing is not able to, because that would be disastrous. Interesting piece in the New York Times, walking through how kind of Republicans and independents really made the difference in the midterms in making the Democratic Party do better than most people expected because of the conspiracy theorist right. So more moderate Republicans just could not get on board with the election deniers and really cared about the legitimacy of our democracy. And those votes were seemingly the ones that made the difference in this election and gave the Democrats um, a lot more wins than most people expected. So here's a part of this article I found interesting. The election results suggest that a focus on Mr. Trump's election lies did not merely galvanize Democrats, but also alienated Republicans and independents. Final turnout figures show registered Republicans cast more ballots than registered Democrats in Arizona and Nevada, but election-denying candidates nevertheless lost important races in each of those states. Republican candidates in statewide contests who embraced Mr. Trump's election lies also significantly underperformed compared with Republicans who did not. This was true even in districts that vote overwhelmingly for Mr. Trump in 2020, suggesting that the uh, defection of ticket splitters like Mr. Moeller likely played a role. In a survey of voters in five battleground states conducted by the research firm Citizen Data for the advocacy group Protect Democracy, a third who cast ballots for a mix of Democrats and Republicans in November cited a concern that GOP candidates held views or promoted policies, quote, that are dangerous to democracy. So a lot of those voters that made the difference in this midterm election that prevented a lot of the dangerous election denying candidates from getting in power, the hardcore MAGA individuals, were ticket splitters, as they're called, people who decided, okay, for example, I'm going to vote for the Republican in the House of Representatives election, but the Senate candidate who is just so bonkers, so MAGA, I'm going to vote against them and vote for the Democrat. And that really did make the difference. We saw prominent examples of this occurring where uh, the governor would do really well within the Republican Party in a race, but on the same ticket, the Senate candidate wouldn't do well because individuals were saying, okay, this gubernatorial candidate is a normal, more moderate Republican. I'll vote for them. But 
the Senate candidate is just absolutely off the rocker. I'm going to vote for the Democrat. And it created the political reality we're going to be in now. So in a sense, it's or in a big sense, it's really, really good that enough Republicans have an awareness of how dangerous the MAGA election denying mindset is within their party. Then I think the Democratic Party needs to start thinking now about once, hopefully, the hardcore MAGA movement is completely diminished, what is going to be the message that isn't just about we're better than that, because it's absolutely true, but is also here's an incredible message we have, a positive message about what we do, what we are, separate from just being better than the MAGA movement. Because Biden did a really good job of making clear, I think, to the American people, the threat to democracy that was posed by the MAGA movement. And a lot of people voted based on that threat. But eventually we hope that threat will be gone. And so Biden, who I think has a lot of policy achievements, I think could have done a better job of both messages, threat to democracy. And if these people get defeated, here's what we're going to do with the power you've given us, because then I think you could win um, even more of these elections. But very interesting um, from the New York Times. And it does seem to be the case that's absolutely true in what made the midterms what they were. A Trump lawyer appeared on CNN for a pretty wild interview. I mean, he'll look at the camera and act professional, so it might not seem super wild, but what he's actually saying is so strange and dishonest. So take a look at this, trying to defend all of the different um, attempts by Trump to overturn the election. So many specifics that have been revealed through the January 6th Select Committee's final report. And this is what he has to say in response to all of that. Let's look at some of the evidence that they- And of course the CNN host will lay it all out first. They laid out in support of their conclusion because they don't just focus on January 6th. They go all the way back before election day. And they argue that this, this plan to refute and disrupt the election results. They argue that it was, quote, premeditated. They point to emails from a conservative watchdog group between them and the White House saying that, look, just just refute the election no matter what happens. They specifically point to the pressure campaign on states. They say there were over 200 contacts by the former president and his associates on states. They point to Trump's multiple contacts with the RNC chairwoman to ensure that allies were deputized to push this false elector claim. They also talk about how the former president was in touch with John Eastman when he was drafting that memo that is really at the center of his pressure campaign on the former vice president. So what evidence is it that you would have or you believe the committee would have to refute uh, this, this roadmap that they've laid out to try to support this conclusion? So great question. She's pretty much saying of all that has been revealed in the January 6th Select Committee, you as someone who's trying to defend Trump, what is the argument about why this information isn't as damning as it seems to be? Sure. Everything that you just described, it can be seen in the light of you know, trying to overturn an election, but it also can be seen in the light of attempting to make sure that the election results are correct. Whoa, that is a really refined uh wording to say a very dishonest thing. So he's trying to equate making sure the election results are secure and good and legitimate with trying to stay in power despite losing. So different. 
in one case, you even ask for extra audits or you dive into yourself about learning of the different processes that are currently in place to verify the legitimacy of different elections and the process we have that is very secure people from both parties getting to witness the counting and all of the different verification steps that we have that is how you would make sure and convince yourself of the legitimacy through the facts you would go gather information and make sure and then if you found something that seemed iffy then you would bring up an issue trying to overturn the election with no facts which is what happened is trying and we'll continue with this interview i promise is trying to despite not having any evidence that anything was wrong with our election results, having plenty of evidence that they were legitimate because you can go look at the different results and the way that our process works and going, I don't care before I have any evidence, I'm going to make claims. He wasn't saying, I just want to make sure the election was secure. He was saying it wasn't, it was stolen and we need to overthrow our democratic process because of that. So equating the two things is just profoundly dishonest. Let's continue. You know, if the and you have to assume for a second, he's been told that there's fraud in the election. There are certain things to show by people he brought in the room to tell him that. <laughs> tell me that the election was stolen. The election was stolen. I've been told the election was stolen. I have to <laughs> investigate. So that there were inconsistencies, fraud and irregularities, and those things needed to be looked at looked into. The people that are supposed to look into that is law enforcement, whether it be the FBI or the. And they do. When there's actual cases of voter fraud, people are held accountable through our legal process. States specifically. So would there be pressure on states to go back and investigate to figure out whether the results are in fact accurate? Absolutely. That's what we would expect. And they did that. Countless audits across multiple states, countless investigations, and it still found that Biden uh, legitimately won the election. President to do if he was presented with evidence that the results were inaccurate. So the fact that there is this contact, the fact that there are the multiple requests to investigate, that's not incriminating at all. In fact, that's something that you expect the chief executive to do because he is constitutionally required to make sure that the laws of the United States are faithfully executed. I mean, that's a masterclass in put on a suit, talk in a professional tone, and just say, wildly dishonest things in an attempt to uh, trick people, I guess. Because framing this as Trump was just acting as president and bringing up honest concerns about our election process. And he uh, did honest investigations and just wanted to see what the result of them were. Mm -mm. Before having any evidence, he started claiming the election 100% was stolen. And that's why he has to stay president. That's what happened. And then he attempted, again, before he had gathered any evidence because there wasn't any, scheming up a plan to have alternate slate of electors come to Washington, pretend like those are the real electors, have Vice President um, recognize that in some form or fashion, and then pretend that Trump actually won the election when he didn't. That's a coup attempt, not let's make sure and do a couple extra audits, a couple extra hand counts. No. Second uh, clip I have for you from this interview. Also being told that there was not. He even questioned some of his lawyers, for example, Sidney Powell. Uh, Hope Hicks, I believe, is the one who testified, saying that he would kind of cover the phone while she was talking and be like, look, this sounds crazy, doesn't it? It appeared that even he was skeptical of some of the advice that he was, he was being given. 
Sure. And that's the thing is that he's being given advice by multiple people. People are telling him differing stories. Some of those people are telling him stories that they are supporting with all sorts of spreadsheets and presentations. And other people like Bill Barr are simply saying, oh, there's nothing there. We're not even going to bother investigating it. And had Bill Barr instead said, you know what? I'm going to show you that Sidney Powell is completely full of it. I'm going to send out a few FBI agents, and we're going to show you. That probably would have resolved the issue. But the fact that you have some people who are saying that this is true, some people are saying that it's not true, and nobody is doing a comprehensive investigation to actually show what really happened, it's that failure and that refusal to actually go forward and pr conclusively prove it one way or the other that's where the ambiguity comes in and where the questions come in. I will note that the Attorney General, former Attorney General Bill Barr, he told the committee that he does not believe that Trump ever had any interest in what the actual facts were. But I want to move on to... Yes, a hundred percent. That is just so wild what he's trying... I think this is going to be the reframing of history that's going to be attempted by some people, which is, oh my gosh, the left's so dramatic. All of these libs are so dramatic. They pretend that Trump tried to overthrow our democratic process. And really, he was just asking questions. He was just wanting a couple extra verifications and investigations into these very substantiated uh, allegations about our election. And one of the things that reveals their complete misunderstanding of the burden of proof is the way they'll phrase it of, listen, all you had to do was investigate the claims that we were making and show to us that they weren't true. Then it would have been all okay. Just show us the evidence that the election was good and we'll be fine. That's what, as I've said in a previous segment, the proof that, for example, when uh, Steve Bannon was saying a similar thing about Katie Hobbs, that Katie Hobbs won her election is the election, is the multiple steps of verification is the certification, is the secure process we have to run elections, then if you feel, based on evidence you have, that that process was broken in some way or tampered with in some way, you present that. And you have to prove that something went wrong with our previously, uh, so far, as of now, secure election process. So the proof that Joe Biden had that everyone had that Joe Biden won was the election process that we have. You have to prove that something went wrong there and that doesn't actually reflect the votes that were cast, right? That's what they completely misunderstand because putting the burden on those who are respecting the legitimacy of the election and saying, you should have just proved that it was good. We did. It's called the election and the proof that it was good was that there's no evidence that anything went wrong with it. That's the proof. <laughs> you can't say prove that there's that the claims I'm making without evidence don't have evidence. What? They don't. That's that's the proof. So you get the point. It is so wild to watch this complete rewriting of what really occurred by uh, those around Trump. Thank you so much for watching and listening to today's show. We'll see you tomorrow.